0: The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank
1: Discussion with Passion on CJD 800. Sitting in is Kelly Alexander.
0: Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on Passion. It's 10.06.0 right now in downtown Montreal. I am Kelly Alexander. Very happy to be with you on Passion for the rest of the week and Monday night as well. Joining us tonight is David Essel. He's a master life coach, a motivational speaker, a counselor, and the author of Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life. And his newly released book, Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know. David, thank you so much for spending time with us on the program tonight.
1: Kelly, excited to be with you. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. And I'm going to give out our phone numbers and our text line because I know, uh, I'm sure people would love to ask you some questions as we're sort of going along. So you can reach out to us again, David, with me until 11 o'clock tonight. So 514-790-0800 by phone and 514-800 by text. So David, I know that we're going to talk about uh, addiction issues tonight. So I wanted to, to start off, I guess, by asking you, how do you know when something has turned into an addiction, whether that's drugs or alcohol? or sex
1: you know Kelly we have a a definition that we use for addiction and an addiction is a return and it's pretty simple to define it it's a return to any thought substance behavior or person that is unhealthy for us period so if someone is drinking on a regular basis and it's an unhealthy amount of drinking then that would be considered an addiction if someone returns to a relationship that is dysfunctional, that would be considered an addiction. If someone has really low self-confidence, self-esteem, or they're victims in life, and they stay in that victimhood mindset, then we would say that those would all be examples of addiction. It's a return to something that is not serving us, Kelly.
0: And with regards to addictions, I know that... Um you know there it's it's a disease that you know many professionals say that. I'm just wondering if with regards to the fact that addictions are categorized as a disease, do they only come out of trauma
1: Well great question you know we, we don't we don't look at the disease model as valid oh okay uh, a lot a, a lot of people do I don't, and I haven't for the longest period of time and I'll tell you why um When we have a disease, when we look at a disease, we think of something like cancer or muscular dystrophy or multiple sclerosis. Um, Diseases need to be treated medically in order to be healed. The reason why we don't call like alcoholism a disease is because there's no medical treatment for it, Kelly. There's codependency, which we believe is the largest addiction in the world. There's no medical treatment for it. So if there's no medical treatment... We don't consider it a disease. Does that make sense?
0: It makes sense with what you're talking about. And I just wanted to ask, too, like, with regards to codice- codependency, explain your take and your stance on, on that and why it's uh, such a prevalent problem across the planet.
1: Yeah, well, codependency can wear many different hats. And so anyone who needs alcohol to relax, to have fun, to beat boredom, to handle stress, is that we look at that as they are codependent to alcohol. In other words... Without alcohol, they do not feel themselves. They do not feel grounded. Um, if, if we're talking about codependency in relationships, that would be an example like I gave earlier, where someone returns to an individual who mistreats them emotionally, physically, whatever it might be. And we would say in that case, you know, these individuals are working with codependency, which is, is the largest addiction in the world because it doesn't just cover a, a codependency with alcohol or a codependency with nicotine or a substance, it also covers relationships. So without a doubt, and, and then, Kelly, if we took it a step further, we would say of the addictions that fall underneath what we believe is the codependency model, the largest one in the world is codependency in relationships. I mean, there are 8 year old 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds that have become outrageously codependent to friends, to family members, there are 90 year olds that are still codependent to their adult children. And so that disease or not disease condition of codependency is the largest because it can affect people at any age, any socioeconomic strata whatsoever. It's huge.
0: David, how does someone how does an eight year old become codependent at that age? Is it because they have helicopter parents? Or how does that how does that happen?
1: It can be helicopter parents. It can be peer pressure. Okay. You know, if you think, you know, how many how many kids at 8 or 10 or 12 have the confidence to walk away from their friends who are smoking or drinking vaping, which is huge? You know, how many 8, 10, 12 year olds could say to their friends that are playing video games 10 hours a day that they're not going to do it anymore? You know, peer pressure is huge. So that's how the younger generation gets sucked into codependent behavior. And if they're raised, Kelly, in an environment where codependency reigns, you know, mom and dad have dysfunctional codependent relationships. Maybe there's a ton of of passive aggressive behavior going on. There's control going on. So these kids, 8, 10, 12, are observing this dysfunction, and it seems normal to them since they're in that environment 24 hours a day.
0: Okay. 514-790-0800 by phone and 514-800 by text if you have questions for David Essel again, a master life coach, motivational speaker, author, counselor. Uh, Again, if you'd like to uh, learn more about David, you can check out his website, Davidessel.com, and all of his social media handles are on there as well. David, I just wanted to ask you, too, when you were talking about uh, the family dynamic— I know that in certain households, like, especially as, depending on, on the relationship between the parents, sometimes I find that uh, there's instances where one of the parents becomes more buddy-buddy with the child than maybe being a mom or a dad in that, in that situation. Uh, is that then another sort of sign of codependency if they're treating their kid more as, like, a partner? And I'm not talking in any sort of sexual sense, just more of, like, a buddy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that would be that, that. would mean then that the parent is codependent with the child. In other words, you know, they don't want the child upset. They don't want the child, you know, acting out. So they do things that are inappropriate from a parental point of view to win the affection of their child. Now, that's codependency from the parent's point of view. If it goes on long enough, then the child is running the household, and pretty soon the whole family could be codependent with that child. As a matter of fact, years ago, I worked with a divorced couple where the four-year-old little girl was running the family. Oh, wow. You know, the mom – yeah, the mom had her four days a week. The dad had her three days a week. So whenever she wanted something, the little girl wanted something, and mom or dad would say no, if they were in a store, she would lay on the floor. She would throw things in the store. She would scream until she got her way. Hmm. Now, they bring her into the office, and, of course, she's exhibiting the same behavior in the office – It took us six months, Kelly, in order to get the mom and the dad, because it wasn't the little girl's fault that she was running the family. The the mom and dad were afraid to set boundaries and consequences because they wanted their child to like them, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. You know, I think it's important to have a great relationship with a child, but not to go to the extent where that we are allowing them to make decisions. We're afraid to... Um, discipline them. And when I say discipline, I don't mean physical. We're afraid to tell them no. We're afraid. To... And, and what I did in, in the office was that I helped the little girl express what she was feeling. Once she was able to express her emotions and once mom and dad started putting boundaries and consequences into their lives with the little girl, by the age of five and a half, she was a totally changed child.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm imagining that must have been such a burden on her, even not especially being so young, not knowing what's kind of going on because her brain couldn't have been that far developed. So that's a, a crazy yeah, situation. Oh, yeah, no, you're right.
1: My goodness. You know, I mean no, and you know all she knew was that for her to get her needs met, all she had to do was raise hell. Right. And once she did it, whatever she wanted, she got. Right. So. Yeah. So it, and it's not her fault. You know, I always say this to parents. Parents go, oh, you know, we we have a terrible child and we have it. And I say, it's not the child. It's the environment they were raised in. And if we can change the approach within the environment, we can help change the child.
0: Much more coming up with David Essel again, master life coach, author, counselor. We're talking about addiction tonight. So if you have questions for David, here until 11 o'clock with us on CJD 514 790 by phone and 514 800 by text. My name is Kelly Alexander, sitting in for Dr. Lori Batito tonight on Passion. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's passion with cjad 800's Dr. Lori Batito.
1: Sitting in is Kelly Alexander.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with us on Passion. Tonight, we're speaking about addiction issues. Our guest is David Essel, a master life coach, motivational speaker and counsellor, and the author of Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life, and also the newly released book, Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know. You can learn more about David on his website, Davidessel.com, and you can, of course, pick up all of his social media handles. David, I wanted to, I guess, ask you again some some more specifics about addiction. Is there an underlying cause to all addictions like whether it's alcohol or whether it's like sex addiction like is it all kind of stemming from the same place
1: you asked a really good or made a a great statement earlier Kelly, when you used the word trauma and you know some professionals believe that all addictions are caused by trauma and i think that that could be actually discussed as a reality statement If we understand what trauma means and, you know, too many times people, when they think of trauma, they think of, you know, losing a parent when you're young, um, a near near death experience, a near drowning war, you know, those types of things with trauma. But, you know, trauma can be a neglected child. So when we look at, you know, where does all the addiction come from, I believe and we believe in our work that the number one cause is low self-confidence and low self-esteem. Now, that's all internal work. But that low self-confidence and low self-esteem can happen in a child who is not nurtured, who is not supported, who is not emotionally loved, who's not listened to. So trauma can be a part of it. But the real thing that we look at is that what's caused such low self-confidence and low self-esteem that instead of dealing with the boredom or the anger or anything else that could come up, resentment that would create addiction, is the fact that we don't know how to deal with those emotions. Peer pressure, I mentioned earlier. You know, peer pressure is all about a lack of confidence and self-esteem. So addictions have this unbelievable ability to begin early in life. You know, Kelly, for years I was an alcoholic and cocaine addict, and I can tell you it started at eight years of age when I found out that if I ate enough sugar when I was mad, that i would feel okay Uh now for our listeners sugar has the same identical effect on the brain that alcohol has so at eight years of age i found an escape route you know i was an outrageously sensitive child i was an angry child growing up but i found that if i used sugar i could calm myself down so i became addicted to sugar at eight and then at 12 i was introduced to alcohol and it was off to the races Even in my work as a counselor and minister and all the things that you had mentioned and said about what I do for 40 years now, the first 20 years I was an alcoholic doing the work that I'm doing right now. So I could stand on stage in front of 5,000 people and wow them for three hours, but then afterwards I would go back and drink. So my own addiction led me to do amazing and intense research into what the cause was. And in 2000, when they came out with the genome for alcoholism, I really questioned it. And I said, wait a second, there could be a gene for alcoholism, and there is a gene, but it doesn't cause a person to drink. And that's where we had to go all the way back and go, okay, the gene doesn't cause us to drink, so what does? And that's where we decided and looked at all the information out there and said, if someone has the right emotional support system, the odds of becoming an addict to anything, television, nicotine, drugs, alcohol, or food, is extremely low. Because those people have the ability to deal with the emotions in life that someone like myself didn't have.
0: You mentioned being on stage, and that just brought something to my my consciousness, and I wanted to run this by you. My day job is actually a radio announcer on our FM station for Bell Media, Virgin Radio. And so, obviously, we do a lot of entertainment stories, and we talk a lot about celebrities. And over the years that I've been working on the station, of course, there is tons of celebrity stories where they are dealing with addiction. Uh, You know, uh, not that long ago, Demi Lovato had that overdose. I think it was in the summer of, of 2018. We almost lost her. Justin Bieber has gone through things. Brad Pitt has been recently talking a lot about his uh, overcoming or uh, working through to overcome his uh, alcohol addiction. Uh, I've just been reading actually Elton John's book and of course that, you know, the first like, 20 years of his career at least was he was just popping cocaine constantly. Um, so I'm just wondering for, for for artists like that who have such success and adoring fans um, all over the planet, is is that too much? Like How, how are so many of them addicted to drugs and alcohol
1: Uh, I know it's such a great question and it seems weird to say now could Elton John have low self-confidence and low self-esteem right like Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't make wait a second here's this rock star you know and when when he was playing at Wembley Stadium in front of a hundred thousand people like you have to be confident to get in front of a hundred thousand people But the the real interesting answer is, is I'm going to go back to a statement I made a couple minutes ago. Individuals with really high levels of self-confidence and self-esteem, for our listeners, self-esteem is self-love, would never go down the route of addiction because they realize that if I love myself, if I have high self-esteem, I'm not going to destroy my body. My body is a temple. So I'm not going to be using sugar, cocaine, alcohol, all those kind of things if I'm grounded and healthy, emotionally healthy. But obviously, Elton John, Justin Bieber, uh, Eminem, an, another. Now he's Eminem has been sober for 12 years now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And if, if, if you look at all of those artists, you know they all came. Most of them came from struggle. Right. Most of them came from something that wasn't healthy in their childhood, and they grew into superstars. But here's the interesting thing. Emotionally, there's still, as, as if you're in an addiction, if you're still working with an addiction, you're probably working from an emotional age of anywhere from 12 to 15 or 16 years of age. The brain does not come to full physical maturity till about the age of 24 or 25. So, anyone, including myself, that has struggled with addiction, if you want to heal, the number one thing we have to do is say, I have extreme low levels of self-confidence and self-esteem. And with that admittance, Kelly, we can move mountains and be clean for the rest of our lives. And we don't believe the nonsense that, you know, once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. But once you're an addict, you're always an addict. That's just a bunch of old news. The reality is, is that if you're willing to do the work, you can become clean. We don't even recommend people to say that I'm a recovering alcoholic. We just say, drop all that stuff. Once you've healed, drop the labels, drop the terms. You're a human being. Love it. 514-790-0800
0: by phone and 514-800 by text if you have questions for David Essel we're talking about addiction issues tonight and David of course a master life coach motivational speaker, counselor and the author of Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life and the newly released book Love and Relationship Secrets that everyone needs to know David we had a a text come in to uh, uh, 514-800 asking wanting to know your thoughts on this is it possible people can be addicted to dating similar to sort of seeking, you know, winning the lottery like trying week after week uh, to do that, because apparently this person has two friends, uh, known them for many decades, and they, they seem to constantly, for the last 25 years, keep dating, and then it's just like serial daters. They, they have the chase, they you know get the person that they want, and then they get bored, and then they move on. So they're sort of wondering if, if you could be addicted to dating.
1: Absolutely, 100% you can be. You know, that's like the craziest thing in the world, but you can be, as a matter of fact, a client I worked with last year, a gentleman, was on seven dating sites for a year. Oh, my. <laughs> and, every, and when I said to him, you know, tell me what's called, what's the philosophy behind seven sites, and he said, I hate being alone on weekends.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So he actually knew why he was dating. Mm-hmm. He was looking for a partner but he wasn't really looking for a life partner he was looking for someone to pass the time on weekends now he would he would do really well in the world of dating until women found out that he really was there just to have someone to be with him and then of course they would move on and then he'd be frustrated but you know his whole thing was validation kelly he needed to be validated that he was attractive that he was successful that he was all these things so he would relationship hop you know, you would date someone for a while, they would leave him or he would leave them. And immediately there was someone new that he was going after. So it was the thrill of the chase, what you said earlier, the boredom once you catch it. Yeah. There you go with an addiction.
0: Is In that particular type of instance, David, is there a way where that person can unlearn that and, and sort of want to be in a stable? And I'm not saying they need to be in a monogamous relationship, but sort of not be constantly on the hunt.
1: Yeah, but here's the thing, and, and, and this is probably going to curl some toes of people listening right now that that are thinking that they're doing the right thing by being on all these dating sites or, or constantly dating. What we recommend to our clients with any addiction whatsoever, an addiction to television, nicotine, food, alcohol, dating, spending money, it doesn't matter, is that... Once you hit 365 days in a row of not acting upon your addiction, you will start to feel a freedom that you've never had before. And what I did with this gentleman is that we put him on a 360-day diet from dating. Now, you can imagine when I first presented it to him, he was not a fan.
0: Yeah, I'm sure not.
1: It's like it's the same thing when you tell an alcoholic, you know, I'm going to ask you to not drink for a year. I mean, I don't have a lot of friends in my work sometimes, Kelly. I'm sure not. (laughs) You know, and I tell people who are addicted to television, take a year off. And everyone thinks I'm nuts until they see the end result. And with this gentleman, he took the year off. He was blown away at how confident he became and how secure he became when he didn't need to chase to feel validated.
0: Okay, perfect. Now we have much more coming up with David after the news. We're going to talk about the impact of addictions on relationships. We're going to talk about um, if you are a partner of someone that is addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex and, and how to sort of navigate yourself through that. So much more coming up on Passion right here on CJAD. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD
1: 800. Sitting in is Kelly Alexander.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Passion Tonight. Again, it is Kelly Alexander with you until 11 o'clock. Our special guest is David Essel, master life coach, motivational speaker and counsellor and the author of Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life and the newly released book, Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know. You can check out David's website, davidessel.com, and uh, sign on to his social media from there. David, so I wanted to ask you um, about this. With regards to uh, addiction um, you know, when it's someone else is involved in the situation, you're the person's partner, how does that affect a relationship when you are dealing with someone who is either, you know, drinking too much or taking drugs, all that sort of stuff?
1: Well, they, the person who is the addict is not emotionally available. And in any addiction, Kelly, the person is going to choose their addiction or their substance or their behavioral addiction over the relationship every time. And this is just reality. Uh, if you are with someone who is an alcoholic or a addict of any type whatsoever, and you're expecting that your relationship will heal over time, it's a huge mis- disconnect right there. You know, we, we don't have a lot of patience in regard. Now, I have a lot of patience with my clients who are addicts and alcoholics. But in relationships, especially, Kelly, if there's children, we encourage whoever is the non-addict to learn how to set outrageously strong boundaries and consequences. You know, in our new book that you've mentioned, Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know, we have tons of information and examples in there about individuals who were with alcoholics. And one of the stories that I had that we share that i will love to give you guys right now is that there was a couple... They had been together married for 25 years. The husband was an alcoholic all 25 years. The wife was a nagger, and that's what we call people that set boundaries without consequences. So she would just nag him. If you do this again, I'm leaving you. And She did that for 25 years. And that's a very common dynamic in a relationship where addiction is there. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's very common. So one person says, you know, if you get another hangover, if you spend another $1,000 on cocaine, if you do this, I'm leaving, but they don't leave. Once you have said to your addict partner, if you do this again, I will leave, and you don't leave, you have no respect. They have no respect for you whatsoever. So what we say to people is that it is impossible to have a healthy relationship with an addict. And that doesn't mean that I can't stand addicts or hate addicts. I was one, so I know it very well. But it's never going to be a healthy. And if you have children, you really need to set strong boundaries with consequences. And what that means is this. I love you, and I would love to stay with you. In the next 90 days, if you do not commit full bore to your sobriety, we are separating for six months and moving out separately at the end of 6 months if you are not sober we are divorcing that would be the appropriate boundary and consequence if you're with someone who's an addict
0: david what do you say to someone who so it is a is a non-addict but they actively know that they are about to you know jump into a relationship with someone that they know is an addict like like how do they not realize i mean maybe they don't need to run for the hills but i'm just wondering like like because I've heard this time and time again where, you know, they, they know that this person is an addict of whatever sort, but they still choose to go down that road.
1: They are called a codependent. Okay. And here's, here's the thing, Kelly. No one can be in a relationship with an addict who is not an addict as well.
0: Oh, wow. Can you repeat that, that? I just want, Yeah, can you say that again one more time?
1: Yeah. I'm going to say it again because it's so important. No one could be in a relationship with an addict, an alcoholic of any type, unless they were an addict as well, and that's where the addiction of codependency is so powerful. So, if, if let's say that you're a non-drinker and you're dated, dating, or married to a drinker, or maybe you, ha- maybe you're married to someone who's addicted to anger, or maybe you're married to someone who's addicted to chaos and drama. Well, the only way you could stay in that engagement is if you had an issue, a problem yourself. And with codependency, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the number one cause of all addiction, including codependency, is low self-confidence and low self-esteem. So the person who's staying because, quote, I promise to stay with you for life through the marriage, which is absolutely an insane justification to use. Anyone who's staying, they're staying because they don't have the confidence and the self-love and the self-respect to take care of themselves so they are addicted as well. 514-790-0800
0: 514 800 by phone and five one four eight hundred by text if you have questions about addiction. We're speaking to David Essel, uh, motivational speaker, counselor, author, uh, again, here with us until 11 o'clock on CJD. David, what do you say to someone who has been with an addict and, and maybe they've, they've finally freed themselves of the situation? What is the chance that they are going to repeat the behavior and find another addict as their partner? 100% okay
1: (laughs) if they they don't do the work and they don't look deeply and usually the work has to be done kelly with a professional this isn't something you can look in the mirror and figure out um but we have to you know with a professional you can say why was i attracted to that person why did i stay so long what was it that was so difficult about leading them when i saw all of the dysfunction that they brought to the table these are the questions the non- alcoholic or drug or nicotine addict, the person who thinks they have no addiction, who, who have full-blown codependency, they need to be looking and asking questions with a professional because here's the thing. If we got into a relationship with one addict, unless it's your very first relationship, the odds are it's not the only time you've been dating someone who has an addiction issue. Mm-hmm. It's not something that just pops from out of the blue. It's usually because of the fact that we don't have enough self-respect and self-love, and so we go down that road. Now, someone who's an independent thinker, Kelly, who has high levels of self-confidence and self-esteem, when they start dating someone and they see the person smoking or drinking or overeating, you know, if they're a food addict or whatever it might be, because they're independent, they would say, hey, you know what? I've been seeing you now for three or four weeks, and I really enjoy your company, and our compatibility is great. We love to laugh at the same stuff, but the drinking doesn't work for me. Now, if you'd like to continue to see me, I would like to do it, but I'm going to ask you to stop drinking. If that doesn't work for you, I totally get it. It just means that it's time for us to move on. What would you like to do?
0: Hmm. Okay. What happens to you, David? how we- Go ahead. Finish yeah. your that. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Oh,
1: no, no, no. That, that was it. That okay. Was done. okay. Yeah.
0: So what happens to when you are, because I know we've been talking about children um, and, and, and the aspect of them being in a situation where one or both of their parents are addicts, do they have, like, what is, I don't know if there's a stat on this, but what is the likelihood that they are going to either turn out to be an addict themselves or maybe go completely 180 the other way?
1: You know, the odds of going 180, unfortunately, are very small, Kelly. You know, and here's the reason why. When we're raised in an environment of dysfunction, we're there normally for 18 years. The average child is in the home for 18 years. So in those 18 years, there's the conscious mind, which is looking out at the world, and there's the subconscious mind, which is absorbing the world. So the conscious mind may look out and go, you know, I see mom and dad arguing all the time, dad getting drunk. There's no way I'm doing that when I grow up. That's the conscious mind. The subconscious mind is the mind in control, though, and the subconscious mind works off of our environment and the patterns that have been fed to it by our environment. And so while we'll say consciously, I'll never do that, the subconscious is saying, well, for 18 years, I saw this as an example of a marriage. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to repeat what is known to me, what is comfortable to me. Even though it's not healthy, it still is comfortable. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, it's called the known, K-N-O-W-N. So the known, whatever we grow up in, you know, if you grew up in a family where that money was always a struggle and mom and dad complained constantly about money, well, the odds are you're probably going to have money issues unless you do the work to turn around the subconscious that was trained from zero to 18 to complain about money or to spend money we don't have. Or to drink or anything else so the odds are you know raised in an environment of addiction there's a really good chance we're going to repeat it in some way now let's say you were raised and your mom was a nicotine addict it doesn't mean that you're going to be a nicotine addict you may use food or you may use alcohol or you may use television but the bottom line is whenever we're raised in an environment where there's addiction That says mom and dad's self-esteem, self-control, self-respect is zero, and it's really hard as a child in that environment to come out at 18 feeling great about yourself with high levels of confidence and self-esteem.
0: Coming up, we're going to get to a text from Jessica, who's texted in to 514-800. And again, if you have questions for David Essel about addiction issues, still here until 11 o'clock. So we'd love to hear from you again on the text line, 514-800, or on the phone, 514-790-0800. My name is Kelly Alexander, sitting in for Dr. Lori on Passion This Week.
1: Passion with
0: Dr. Lori Batito
1: on CJAD 800. Sitting in is Kelly Alexander.
0: 1047, still hovering around zero right now in downtown Montreal. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the show. Again, it is Kelly in for Lori this week, joined by David Essel tonight, Master Life Coach, Motivational Speaker, Counselor, and Author. You can learn more about David on his website, davidessel.com. David, we had a text come in before from Jessica, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but she was wondering if there is the possibility of um, healthy levels of substance use uh, in recreational settings without sort of, I guess, tipping the, the scale too far one, one direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. And before I forget, I want to make this one one comment, and I'll answer that question for our listeners. There is no such thing as an addiction that's gone on for too long that can't be solved. And I think that's really important for our listeners to understand. You could be an addict to anything for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you can still heal. And that hope needs to be discussed. This is not something like you've been given a cancer diagnosis or muscular dystrophy. This is a choice. Healing from addiction is purely a choice. So I, I think that's just really crucial. And, and I'm sorry, could you repeat re- re- yep. that question? Yeah.
0: So Jessica was wondering if there is um, healthy levels of substance use in recreational settings without tipping the scales too much where you're heading like severely down the wrong path.
1: Now, absolutely. You know, in, in the U.S., the government has set out, you know, from studies shown um, what would be called social drinking and when does social drinking cross over into problematic drinking. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to, for women uh, in the in the U.S. government. They say one glass of wine, one drink a day is totally acceptable. Not a problem at all. If a woman goes to two on a daily basis, then that could go into alcohol dependency. It's not addiction. If it goes above two to three or more, then that becomes problematic. And one of the ways that they came about with this information, Kelly, is it's all about if you were pulled over, if you were a woman and you stopped and had two drinks on the way home and got pulled over, the odds are you'd be on that precipice. Of blowing numbers for a driving under the influence mm-hmm. if you had three or four glasses of wine let's say the odds are extremely high that you are now going to spend the night in jail so just having one drink as a so, and and for men it's two drinks to be a social drinker most individuals feel that that is safe now if you had a problem with alcohol and you want to try to become a social drinker the odds of that are very difficult and when we look at, well, what role does genetics have to play with substances? And when we talk about alcohol, I mentioned earlier, I don't believe that genetics has anything to do with the causation of why we drink. But if you do have the gene for alcohol, once you pass those, that second drink and you go, oh, my God, it's Wednesday and I'm feeling great. Let's have a third, fourth and fifth. That's where the gene gets activated within the body. So the genetics has nothing to do with the cause or why we pick up a drink, why we, we, we stop at the store, why we stop at the bar. But if you do have the gene and you have several drinks, it can be activated, and that's where we just don't feel like stopping drinking. Okay. That's where the, the, the problem comes in. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, even though I don't drink anymore and I haven't for a number of years, I have not a problem with friends or when I go to speaking events, I don't have a problem with people drinking. I don't think there's anything wrong with drinking if you know what limits would be considered healthy versus problematic.
0: I wanted to ask you too because I, I we we just had another text come in to 514800 asking about some of the steps towards recovery and, and what that might involve. I'm just wondering if um physical activity and 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 being, you know, healthy, whether that's running or or doing weights or whatever, does that play into into sort of how you do some of your treatment for your clients when it comes to recovering from alcohol and drug abuse?
1: Yeah. You know, Kelly, the, the number one thing we do is, is the very first step is to figure out where it started, how it started, where the origin is, um, you know, how the addiction started, where it started, what the origin. And once we have that, then we can start talking to people logically about what caused them to become the food addict, the alcoholic, the nicotine addict, et cetera. After we get... That what's the cause, and we start the healing. Then what you just said is a huge part of our program. You know, we we have a a holistic addiction recovery program. It's ten weeks long. I do it one on one with people. And once we get past the emotional work of understanding how all this started, then we go into the holistic part of it. And exercise would be a part of it, as you know, it releases endorphins, feel good chemicals which can decrease the craving. We also know from a food point of view is that when our clients are eating every three and a half to four hours, their blood sugar levels stay normalized, which decreases the cravings for alcohol or any of the other substances. So there's a lot of things we do lifestyle-wise. Once we get the emotional part of it under control, then we go into lifestyle, and we can make some major changes in short periods of time.
0: I wanted to ask you this as well, because um, we've been talking about alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sex addiction, other things like nicotine, as you said, food. Is being a workaholic, as people use that term, is that a real thing?
1: Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, I, as a matter of fact, before you, I did an interview today in Australia. And the guy, you know, and and it was a great question because he was saying to me, what's your purpose? What was your What's your purpose on earth? I said, doing the work I do. Mm-hmm. and he said, is that really why you're here? i go, absolutely. And he said, well, if this is why you're here, would you consider yourself a workaholic? And I laughed, and, and this is what I'm going to share in regards to workaholism. If workahol- if the, the amount of hours you put at work is negatively affecting your relationship with your partner, negatively affecting your relationship with your family, negatively affecting relationship with friends, that's or, – or if you are picking up alcohol or, or food or nicotine to help you get through these long hours, then that's where workaholism is a problem. But if you're doing what you love and you have no outside addictions and your relationships are healthy, I would say keep doing what you're doing.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, here's something for you because I know for a while there was shows all about it. I'm not sure if they're still running, but do interventions really work?
1: Oh my gosh. That's a great question. You know, he, this is what I believe personally is that the surprise interventions rarely work. Okay. So, and and imagine this, Kelly, imagine, you know, that, that you have an addiction problem and I'm the, I'm, I'm the mediator, I'm the counselor. And, uh, you know, a, a, one, and, and a good friend of yours says, Hey, Kelly, we're going to get together and we're going to go and do this. And, You go into a house, and you see eight people sitting in chairs, and you see a counselor. Mm -hmm. The odds of that person buying into the recovery, the intervention, is extremely tiny. They feel peer pressure. They feel forced. They feel surprised. They feel lied to. So I'm not a fan of cold call interventions. I am a fan of interventions. And I think if people say, hey, listen, we're really concerned, we want to go in and work with a professional, they may say no and not come in. But if they say yes, there's a greater odd of them recovering than the surprise or cold call intervention.
0: And, David, you know, because, again, when you watch these shows that, that deal with that sort of situation or even, even if you're just watching a soap opera and they're sort of covering this, there's always that thing like where the addict needs to hit rock bottom or their rock bottom to turn things around. Is that true?
1: You just said the correct word, their rock bottom. There is no such thing as rock bottom. Okay. There is and, – and this is – the word you used is awesome, Kelly. Their rock bottom. So let me give you an example. A sixteen year old's rock bottom could be their first hangover and they never drink again. Yeah. Or a seventy five year old could have five DUIs, have lost their license two DUIs again ago, and still drink. So a bottom is a called a choice. That's the definition of a bottom. It's when you get to a point where you choose to heal, then you hit your bottom. But you could kill someone in your car And continue to drink mm-hmm. So there's no such thing as a bottom Across the board that works for people It really comes down to We have to reach a point where we say I need help And when you do that, you've hit your bottom
0: David, I've got about 30 seconds with you Just to sort of answer this last question Which is maybe not enough time, but I feel you can do it For someone who is listening right now And and is struggling What do you want them to, to know, to do To think about as their next step?
1: The most important thing, Kelly, is to reach out and ask for help. Get a professional. Don't do it on your own. Don't think that if you tried in the past and it didn't work, it's going to work now. Make a commitment of time, money, and effort with a professional so that you can save your own life and maybe the lives of people you love.
0: Perfect. David, it's been so great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Kelly, I've had a blast. I can't wait to do it again,
0: honey. Awesome. Perfect. So that is David Essel again, a master life coach, motivational speaker and counselor and the author of Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life and the recently released book, Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know. You can learn more about David on his website, davidessel.com and grab all of his social media handles. My thanks to Dave Simon for pushing all the right buttons tonight. My name is Kelly Alexander. I'll be back with you uh, tomorrow night on Passion where we're going to be having the LGBTQ panel. So can't wait for that. Coming up after the news, it's CTV National News with Lisa LaFlamme right here on CJAD.